now our Cactus Campus and our chapel and venue are joining us for our time in the Word, and we have a, a very special guest here today uh, that it's my privilege to introduce. Uh, Dr. Larry Crabb is going to be our guest speaker today. Uh, I first was made aware of Larry back when I was in seminary in the 1980s. I've shared with you guys before that those were somewhat difficult days for me. I was pretty messed up as a young guy and uh, felt very alone and confused and even wondered if I should dare go into the ministry as messed up as I felt, even though I was a believer in Jesus. And uh, I ran across this book when I was in seminary called Inside Out by Larry Crabb. And it would not be an overstatement to say that it was the first book I had ever read in my seven years of being a Christian in which it just hit me right in my heart, right between the eyes, in my understanding of God. Uh, Larry writes to people who are in pain, who have a, uh, an appreciation of the difficulties of life, and that's where I was, and, and this book Inside Out affected me at a very, very deep level. And so for the next 15 years, I would read just about everything that Larry Crabb came out with, uh, Shattered Dreams and Connecting, Finding God, all these books. He's written 26 books. His 27th book is coming out uh, this, this summer. And a true story, about 15 years ago, I got the chance to meet Larry. And I was very, very excited about this. It was going to be at a golf outing. And, uh, and so I, 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 I was very nervous because I don't golf very well. And there's a reason I don't golf well. I do my job, and so I don't have time to become a golfer. When I meet my pastor friends that are like scratch golfers, the first question I ask them is, how is your ministry? And I, I can already answer that. So, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I'm not a very good golfer. So it's a true story. That morning I, I, I had a quiet time, and I prayed to the Lord, because here I am golfing with Larry Crabb. I said, God, I don't care about the 110 shots that I'm going to hit today on the golf course but would you allow my very first shot, please, just my first one, to be a good one? And, and that's all I asked of God. And, and I met Larry, and we're on the first tee there, and I, and I took my swing on the very first hole, and, and guys, gals, I dubbed it. I dubbed it, and it went like three feet. <laughs> and I was mortified, and I looked at Larry, and I said, you know, I, I prayed, I prayed that that would not happen. And, and he looked at me, and he said, well, so much for answered prayer. And we started a, a wonderful friendship from that day forward. For 15 years, uh, Larry and I have, have really been in harness together. I, it would not be, again, an understatement or overstatement to say that uh, he has influenced your pastor, me, more on a spiritual level than anybody else alive today. Uh, he's a mentor. He's a friend. Uh, I could tell you a lot more about him. He has influenced, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world in his speaking, his books, uh, his work as a spiritual director and as a counselor. But the most intimate thing I can say is that he's my friend. He uh, is a dear friend, and it's a joy to be able to share him with you today. So let's give a great Scottsdale Bible welcome to Dr. Larry Crabb. I love good introductions. <laughs> Jamie, I, that means a lot to me to have you say that. Um, I wish we were more often that God would provide people with whom you could have just very deep soul-to-soul -soul relationships. But God has provided a few in my life, and Jamie is certainly 
on that short list. And I'm very grateful for our very mutual relationship where he tells me I've blessed him, but he's blessed me every bit as much, if not more. Um, he means a lot to me. I'm very glad to be with him. And I'm very glad to enjoy his introduction because I do get a chance to speak fairly often in different venues. And sometimes the introductions aren't everything I might have wished for. I was in Germany a couple of years ago, about eight or nine years ago. I'm afraid to say that because my wife is here at this service and she knows exactly when something happened. So when I say eight or nine years ago, she sometimes will shout out, Larry, that was 12 years ago in June. Why didn't you know that? I tell her people don't care. She doesn't seem to listen to me. So 10 years ago, I say with some fear of contradiction. I was speaking with Willow Creek Church, you know, the big church outside of Chicago in Barrington, Illinois, and they were speaking in Germany. They had 6,000 Germans there to listen to this leadership summit that I was part of, and Bill Hybels, the pastor of that church, Willow Creek, introduced me, and he got up and he said some very kind things that, of course, I appreciated, but then he said this before I got up. He said, um, I want you all to know that Larry Crabb is a complicated man. And people, when they listen to what he has to say, tend to resist everything he has to say. Now, please welcome Larry Crabb. <laughs> so I got up a little bit nonplussed. I wasn't quite sure what to do. So what I actually did say was, well, I stand before you as a complicated man, and you now sit before me prepared to resist everything I'm going to say. Now, let's get started. <laughs> so we had a great time together. Well, I don't feel that way but I'm speaking here at Scottsdale Bible Church. I feel very welcome and I'm very glad to be a part of this. But I do plead guilty to have some complexity within me because I've faced the Christian life now for 65 years and it isn't what I expected it to be in lots of ways. We just moved to Charlotte about 15, 16 months ago. <clears throat> I think that's right, somewhere between six and 15. <laughs> From Denver, Colorado, where we spent the last 25 years, we moved to Charlotte because we have three granddaughters there, young girls, and we moved to be adored. <laughs> it's working out fairly well. But we moved to Charlotte, which we've all realized in the last couple of weeks, Billy Graham was the son of Charlotte. And when he died on February 21st, the local press and TV gave a great deal of attention to the life and ministry of Billy Graham. And they replayed some of his sermons. I had the privilege of listening to Billy Graham at several crusades. Got to meet him once for just a few minutes. A very humble, wonderful man. But something I noticed, and I thought about this in the last couple of weeks, that Billy Graham had a very, very profound and powerful, simple message. It wasn't complicated. Mine tend to be complicated. His sermons were very, very simple. And I say that with a great compliment. And that's not a put down, that's a compliment. So simple, I think, in a very powerful, wonderful way of how do you get to heaven? That was his burden. He was an evangelist. And his ministry, I suppose, could be summarized in maybe five sentences. Sentences along these lines. You're familiar with the words. The Bible says, one of Billy Graham's favorite sentences, or prefaces to a sentence, the Bible says Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Number two, confess that you're a sinner. Number three, Believe Jesus loves you and died to pay the price of your sin, sentence four. Accept him as your savior tonight. Number five, the buses will wait. So don't worry about it. A very, very simple message. 
Well, I heard that message when I was eight years old. It was at a boys' camp where there were about 60 boys my age, seven, eight, nine years old, at this Christian boys' camp around a campfire one night, and the, the fires were burning brightly. The campfire was huge. The flames were shooting at 20, into the air, 20 feet into the air, very, very hot. Counselor got up, and he said, Boys, I want you to look into the fire. You have a choice to make. You're ahead of me, aren't you? You can trust Jesus or burn in the fires of hell forever. Remember as an eight-year-old kid thinking, that's a no-brainer. So I trusted Jesus as an eight-year-old kid, and I believe I was saved then, but I believed I entered the Christian life as an eight-year-old. What else would you do? But I entered the Christian life with certain expectations. Raised in a good family, had a wonderful father, wonderful mother, so I figured that God is a wonderful father, and he'll be there for me every step of the way, and he'll protect me against all the difficulties of life, and everything will go really well for me. Well, has it worked out that way? A lot of struggles in my life. And the struggles in my life, I currently am struggling with 21 years of cancer. Both of our boys are now walking with the Lord, for which we're incredibly grateful. They're 49 and 47. One went through a very terrible divorce when his wife left him. The other had a very terrible experience in college. He was actually expelled from the university, Christian University, where two weeks before I had given the spiritual enrichment talks. It was hard. And my question was, God, where are you? What are you, what are you doing with my Christian life? I don't understand it. I, the journey that I began when I was eight, now I'm in my 40s, 50s, 60s, now I'm in my 73. God, these things have gone wrong. I don't understand it. And I don't understand where you are. You don't give me this deep sense of your presence the way I want it 24-7. I just don't have it that way. And I wish I did. Please, God, couldn't you be more real to me? One of the men who has influenced my life so very, very deeply is a man that some of you might have heard of, Dr. James Houston, professor at Regent College in Vancouver. He was a personal student of C.S. Lewis, which really impresses me. And he's 95 years old at this time now, but some years ago when I had my very first battle with cancer, he called me, and I was in the hospital for three weeks, and I had a feeding tube and IVs and all sorts of things, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and this is Dr. Houston, this is Jim Houston calling. Oh, Dr. Houston, how kind of you to call. He said, up here at Regent College, many people have heard that you have cancer, and they're saying, poor Larry, poor Larry. I'm calling to say, Larry, I'm not saying poor Larry, I'm saying privilege, Larry. Larry, you're in commander training. Well, goodbye now, and he hung up. <laughs> he gave me a perspective that a larger story is being told than the smaller story of my life. And I've come to think about it, thanks to Dr. Houston and many other sources, that it's so easy for us to live our lives in between our birth and our death when God is telling a story that is in between the cross and the coming. And do I have any understanding of what it means to, as I live in my smaller story, which of course I do, I was born then, I'll die someday, and in between I'm to live my life, but I'm to be caught up into the larger story that the cross makes possible and the coming sustains when it's hard. What does it mean to live the in-between life between the cross and the coming? Jim Houston, it seems to me, as much as anybody that I know has understood the meaning of that. The second time when the cancer came back and I had more surgery, I received a letter from Dr. Houston, one of my favorite letters of all time. He said, um, Larry, dear Larry, how grievous to hear that your cancer has returned. 
But no doubt, you've heard the words of Samuel Johnson, who wrote that nothing quite clears the mind like a walk up the gallows. I am so looking forward to what your ministry will be as your mind continues to clear. Sincerely, Jim. What's this framework for life? I appreciate it when people wrote me and say, so sorry you have cancer, we're praying for you. That's meaningful, I'm glad for that. But it's so easy to take those kind of prayers within the context of our smaller story that I want my story to go well. I would like this to happen well. I'd like that to happen well. I pray for it. Aren't all prayers aren't answered? And I think to this day, JB's prayers for golf have not, that's not that's their story. <laughs> but in the middle of all the prayers that we make, some he answers, some he doesn't. We don't quite get it because he's telling a story that we don't understand. How did we expect to understand the story? Who gives God counsel? Isaiah 55, 8 says that my thoughts are so far above your thoughts as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above yours and my ways are beyond your imagination. You can't understand all that I'm doing when I allow these difficulties to come into your life. And even when I allow and arrange for, can I put it that way, to withdraw my felt sense of presence from you. I don't always give you a 24-7 awareness. Now, I am with you, Jesus promised. I will never leave you nor forsake you, but God, I want to feel that more than I do. And the absence of his felt presence, what it's doing in me, it seems to me, as I look back at my life, is it deepens my thirst to know God. God, where are you? I don't see you, but I'm thirstier for you when I sense your absence more than your presence. I want to know you better. When my brother was killed in an airplane accident in 1991, I remember saying to God after that, after the memorial services and all the things that had to happen when Bill was killed in this airplane crash, I remember a couple of months maybe after his death, I couldn't sleep one night and I realized there were tears within me I had not yet shed. So I got up, I went to my little study, I got out my Bible and I said, God, I don't understand in my smaller story, I didn't use that language then, but in my smaller story between my birth and my death, Bill has died prematurely. I don't understand what's going on here, God, and I want to find some comfort from you and I want to read my Bible until I get comfort and I read it for about half an hour, got no comfort, got so angry, I threw my Bible across the room, which I shouldn't do, but I did. And afterwards, I fell on my face and I began to weep and this was my prayer. God, I know you're all I have but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. Can I find you? Can I know you a little better than I do? I wrote a book called Finding God based on that. I want to know the Lord even in his felt absence. I know he's there. What does it mean to have faith? It's the evidence of things that are not seen. And when things get hard in our lives that we can't figure it out, it's then, and this is the title of my remarks this morning, it's then that for many of us, and I presume many of you can resonate with this, that our faith goes on trial. What do we really believe? How deeply do we believe? Do we really believe in God's goodness at this moment when it's not visible on our terms because he's not cooperating with the script that we've written for our smaller story? Because he's written a script for the larger story, eternity past, that is so different than the script that I had in mind for my story, the script that I thought a loving God would do for me, and yet I wonder, I know you love me, but God, what are you doing with this? Why didn't you change that? Why didn't you protect me against that? What are you doing, God? I don't understand. I don't even feel your presence. My faith is on trial. Do I really deeply believe who you claim to be and who I know you are? Those are my questions. I've been preoccupied for the last month maybe 
with Isaiah chapter 50, and that's my text for the rest of our time together. Isaiah chapter 50. If you have your Bibles, take a look at that. If you don't turn your Bibles now, I presume you've memorized the chapter, so there's no need to. <laughs> but Isaiah chapter 50, it occurred to me as I've been studying this in the last couple of weeks, months, it's occurred to me that in Isaiah chapter 50, we really have the words of God spoken to people who are finding their life in between their birth and their death not going so well. And their faith is a bit on trial. They're wondering, I know I believe, but do I deeply believe? What do I believe? How do I live what I believe? I know I'm a Christian. I know he died for my sins. I know he's good to me. I know he tells me in Jeremiah, he's going to always do me good, but I don't know the good he's doing right now. I don't understand the good that he's doing, but he's doing me good. I want to know what that good is so I can rest in it. What does God say to people when their faith is on trial and they're not convinced or they're struggling with being convinced whether God is the good God that he claims to be? Isaiah chapter 50, we have words from God that I think address the circumstances I'm talking about. And to give you a feel, to make sure you understand from the book of Isaiah, who is God talking to? He's talking to his discouraged chosen people. Things were not going well for them. From their perspective, God was not treating them the way his chosen children should be treated. And because life was not going well with Babylon being a huge threat, with, with judgments coming and all sorts of difficulties, their life between their birth and their death was not going well at all from their perspective. And in chapter 49 and verse 14, I'll read it to you. The Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem were saying this, Isaiah 49, 14, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. And if he really is with us, then what on earth is he doing? Maybe a better phrase is, what in heaven is he doing? How is heaven going to come down so glory fills my soul, an old hymn that I've sung for years? Well, God is speaking to people whose faith was on trial. And in chapter 50, we hear three voices. If you look at the text carefully, we're going to read it in just a moment. And the first three verses, in a way that I think becomes clear as you listen. In the first three verses, I hear God the Father speaking. And then starting at verse 4, going through verse 9, I hear God the Son speaking. And when you read those verses, you'll understand why I say that. Commentators generally agree on this, and it makes perfect sense to me. And then after the Father speaks for three verses, and Jesus speaks from 4 to 9, then the in my mind, the climax of Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11, seem to me to be spoken by the Holy Spirit. We have the Trinity talking to us. I wonder how much the word Trinity comes to your mind when you think about God. Do we understand that the Trinity is the only small group in the history of time that's gotten along really well? And when that first dawned on me, my question was, how do you get along so well? I've been in small groups. You always have some tension. Some people disagree with my thinking. Can you believe that? It's horrible. And I've got to be, you know, get defensive and be struggle and we have problems. We have difficulties. Even my marriage has some difficulties. Rachel's repenting. We're doing fine. <laughs> Bad sentence. So, of course, there are struggles, but, but the Trinity gets along well. And I want to know how they get along so well. And they want me to join their community, not to be God, of course, but to join the dance of a kind of relating that actually makes things, makes relationships go pretty well. 
but I'm struggling with my faith. I'm worried. Things aren't going well. I'm not getting along as I want to. I'm not loving as well as I should. I'm hurting in ways that I wish I weren't. And all this is going on, and the Trinity begins to speak to me. And I want to read to you now these verses and make a few comments on it. Hear the word of the Lord speaking to people whose faith is on trial because life has gotten hard. Why are we surprised by that? Jesus made it clear in Matthew 7 that there's a broad road that's a pretty easy way to live and most people prefer it, but it leads to a wasted life. Then he goes on to say, but there's a narrow road. It's the hard way, but it leads to the abundant life that Jesus came to give. So when you're on the narrow road, you got to expect what Jesus said in John 16, 33, that there's going to be many trials and sorrows. He said that. Did you ever notice that in John 14, 15, and 16? He said to his disciples, he said, you're going to fail, people are going to hate you, and I'm taking off, be of good cheer. <laughs> What's he talking about? Well, maybe we can get some insight into how God talks to us when life doesn't seem to be working and his presence doesn't seem to be real. Verses 1 to 3 begin this way in Isaiah 50. This is what the Lord says. And as Brennan Manning has often said, if you know the name Brennan Manning, some of you do, when God speaks, the best thing we can do is listen. This is what the Lord says. Now, who's he talking to? People who just earlier had said, you've deserted us. You've forsaken us. A good God would treat us better. We don't understand what it means to call you good. Oswald Chambers once wrote, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. Now he's talking to people who are struggling with their faith, as you and I sometimes are. This is what the Lord says. Was your mother sent away because I divorced her? Why is he saying that? That I sell you as slaves to my creditors? God, I don't get you. No, you were sold because of your sins, and your mother too was taken because of your sins. Why was no one there when I came? Why didn't anyone answer when I called? Is it because I have no power to rescue? That is not the reason. No, for I can speak to the sea and make it dry up. I can turn rivers into deserts covered with dying fish. I dress the skies in darkness, covering them with the clothes of morning. I can do all that. God, why are you saying all that to me when I'm struggling with my faith? Why are you saying that to Israel? And what can I get out of it? What are you saying to me? I hear the Father talking. I am Almighty God. You're telling me that I can't rescue you from my purposes in the larger story? I can do that. I can do whatever I choose. I'm Almighty God. Are you really thinking, this is what I get out of these verses, are you really thinking that I've divorced you? Deuteronomy 24 says that when a man would divorce his wife, he would give her a certificate of divorce, which was a way of saying the, the, the marriage is over. There is no hope for reconciliation. I am done with you. Is that what you thought I'm doing when your life went bad? Is that what you thought was happening when you got cancer? Is that what you thought was happening when a child died? Is that what you thought was happening when you went broke and you lost your job? Is that what you thought was happening when you felt depressed and couldn't get over your depression? When panic attacks developed and you had to see a counselor? In the middle of all that, are you saying that somehow I'm done with you, that I've given up on you? How could you say that? Don't you know me? I rescued you from Egypt. I'm taking you to Canaan. I've made you all kinds of promises. I'm a good God. And you're actually believing that I'm not for you. How can you buy that? That I sell you as slaves to my creditors? Yes, you owe me a great debt. And do you think that I'm paying off my debt by selling you to people, to creditors? Do you think that's what I'm doing? No. 
My plan is to pay the price of your sins. My plan is to see to it that you're redeemed from your sins. Now, I'm a good God, but right now, it doesn't look like that. But I want you to have faith. Your faith is on trial right now. Why was Noah there when I came? I came to you. I came to you in Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. Remember the Red Sea? Do you remember the Jordan? Do you remember during the wilderness? I kept you alive all the way through all of your rebellion. I never gave up on you. I never will give up on you. Don't you realize I have the power to rescue you from wherever you are? I want you to know that. The father's speaking to his troubled children. Verses one to three. And then Jesus begins to talk. And I think as I read the passage, you're familiar with it. It's rather recognizably here we're talking about Jesus. The sovereign Lord has given me his words of wisdom so that I know how to comfort the weary. Keep in mind these verses I read them. Morning by morning he wakens me and opens my understanding to his will. The sovereign Lord has spoken to me and I've listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. Turned away from what? From his will. What was his will? Crucifixion trouble to say the least I offered my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting and I looked like a failed messiah I looked like trusting in God was pointless because he didn't protect me from all this suffering but because the sovereign Lord helps me I will not be disgraced Therefore, because I trust in his goodness, I know his plan is good. I know the larger story is on track and it's a beautiful story with an incredible eternal ending. Because I know that, I know I will not be disgraced. And therefore, in light of what I believe about the larger story, I have set my face like a stone and I'm determined to do his will at any cost. I know that I'll not be put to shame. He who gives me justice is near. Who will dare to bring charges against me now? Where are my accusers? Let them appear who are telling me that I made a big mistake in trusting God. Oh, I made no mistake. See, the sovereign Lord is on my side. Who will declare me guilty? All my enemies will be destroyed like old clothes that have been eaten by moss. That's Jesus talking to us. And as I've been occupied with these verses, I've been thinking about my own journey. And very aware, after knowing the Lord for 65 years now, very aware that I thought I'd have more sense of his experience on a regular, regular basis. I thought I'd have more awareness of his presence than I often do. And Jesus says, I know how to talk to the weary. I know how to talk to the weary because... The Lord has given me his words of wisdom. He's let me, fully God, fully man, but he's let, me, he's, he's let me as the incarnate son of God living on this earth for 33 years, he's let me see his wisdom. I know the story he's telling and I volunteered to be the center of the plot. And I've come to earth to make the glory of the Father known and to save sinners. I've come to earth to do that. He's given me his words of wisdom. I know the story he's telling and it's wonderful. So I know how to comfort the weary. Something is going on at the very worst moment of your life. The larger story is unfolding in your soul. Really? Oh, yeah. I can give you testimony to that, Jesus then goes on to say. He's spoken to me, and I've listened. 
I've been willing to listen to his word. Are we being willing to listen to his word? Do we sit under the word or do we hear the parts of the word that we enjoy and stick with that and ignore the hard passages that talk about difficulties and struggles and problems? And do we read a book like Jeremiah, I'm going to preach on next week, where he, where he calls Jeremiah early in his years and he says, I'm going to protect you. And I read the story of Jeremiah for 40 years and he didn't look very protected to me. God, what are you doing? You're making no sense to me, but I've listened and I've not rebelled. I've not turned away from the narrow road to walk the broad road. I want to stay in the center of God's will no matter the price. And my price was crucifixion, Jesus speaking. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mockery and, and spitting because the Lord helps me. I'm not going to ever regret. I'm not going to be disgraced in the eyes of any for having followed my God. I've set my face like a stone, determined to do as well. I will not be put to shame. And even during those three hours of darkness, he got on the cross at nine o'clock. He went back to his father shortly after three. But from 12 to three, this, we're told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're told that darkness came over the face of the land for three hours. And for those three hours, I believe Satan had his way and Jesus suffered the hell that I deserve. And the Father did not grant Jesus any sense of his presence for those three hours, and that was hell for Jesus. And at the end of those three hours, what did he say? My God, my God, why'd you forsake me? The first saying from the cross, he said, Father, I want these people that are killing me to be forgiven. He called him Father. The last thing he said from the cross is, Father, into your hands, into my, into your hands I commend my spirit. He called him Father. But after three hours of darkness where there was no sense of intimacy, he couldn't find it within himself to say Father, but he said, you're still my God. You're my authority. You're God. And I have gone through a terrible, terrible experience of no sense of your presence whatsoever. And yet... I'm glad I did as hard as it was, but it's so difficult to enter into that kind of suffering. And I need to continue to be reminded of why have you forsaken me? And I know because you're doing a good work within me and I trust you and I'm not gonna be disgraced because you're gonna accomplish great things through my terrible suffering. He who gives me justice is near. Who will dare to bring charges against me now? Where are my accusers? Who's gonna tell me that I have made a mistake? The sovereign Lord is on my side. And I think Jesus is giving us his words of wisdom. Well, the Father has spoken in the first three verses. And the Father, in those first three verses, has been saying, I know what I'm doing. It doesn't look like it to you as you live within the confines of between your birth and your death. But I know what I'm doing because what I'm doing in your life right now is what's made possible by the cross. That's a huge question. If I live my life in between the cross and the coming, and it seems to me the question I need to be every day asking is, what does the cross make possible today when my heart is broken? What does the cross make possible today when somebody I love died, my brother in a plane crash? What does the cross make possible today when something happens to my children that breaks my heart? What happens when something happens today that just isn't going well at all? I've wrestled with that. Because I want to know what the cross makes possible in my life today. I know what the cross makes possible when I die. I'm going to heaven. That's Billy Graham's message, and that's not complicated. But I want to know what God makes possible through the cross in my life today when things are not as they should be. 
and I'm hurting really badly and I have a thirst for something more than I'm experiencing. What does God make possible? And the Lord says, I, I know what I'm doing. Will you trust me? And will you put the character of God, the character of my son on display by how you relate when life is really, really bad? I know what I'm doing. And as you follow me, the eternal results are going to be the satisfaction of your deepest thirst forever. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. That's the father who's talked to us. Then the son comes along and he says, my father's plan for life in between, the fall of man and my return to make everything change into wonderful times, my crucifixion, the plan my father has for you to live in between the cross and the coming is something that will bring you a deep sense of joy even when you're hurting badly. And then the Spirit speaks in these last two verses. And he asked a very challenging question that I want to end our time with today and I want to think about for just a few moments. So what the Spirit is saying to each of us this morning, I certainly I'm hearing it to myself. Who among you fears the Lord? Obeys the, obeys the servant? If you're walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord, not rely on your God, but watch out. You who live in your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires, this is the reward you will receive from me. You will soon fall down in great torment. What is the Spirit saying to me after what the Father said, what the Son has said, and now the Spirit is saying what? He wants to know. I want you to search your heart. I want you to listen to David in Psalm 139, and I want you to pray the prayer David said at the end of Psalm 39. Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be some way in my soul that is offensive to you. Lead me into paths everlasting because I know that the larger story is leading to joy forever and a deep level of joy now in the middle of the suffering of life. Search me to see what's getting in the way of all that, Father. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys his servant? Am I in that list? Or am I on the broad road thinking I'm on the narrow road? I think that mistake is easy to make. I lead a relatively good life. I've never been unfaithful to my wife. I love her very deeply. I've, I don't watch pornography, never have. I don't smoke dope, even though I spent 25 years in Colorado where I could do very easily. <laughs> we moved to Charlotte. Our two cars were stolen within a couple of months of living there. Terrible to move into a crime-ridden neighborhood like Charlotte. And when they found the one car that I had purchased three weeks earlier before it got stolen, the car was reeking of pot. And they saw a Colorado license plate on my car. And when I went to get the car and the police were there, they were concerned that maybe I was the pot smoker because I came from Colorado. And I had to say, no, I really don't smoke pot. I really don't. So I guess I'm among those who fear the Lord. I got a pretty good life living a lot of blessings in my life. I really enjoy them. I'm very grateful for them. Am I among the, those who fear the Lord and obey his servant? Well, the Lord gives us the way of telling that. Well, when you're living in darkness and don't have a ray of light, what's he talking about? 
when you're living in darkness and life makes no sense and you're confused and you don't know what God is doing and you don't have any sense of how you're supposed to go about it, about living your life, you're disconcerned, you're burdened, and, you're, and you can't seem to find the way forward. This narrow road has gotten so narrow, you don't even know what the next step is and you're really burdened by it. If when that, if when that happens and you're, you're really at, 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 your, at a loss of what it means to trust God and to fur, be further ahead and to trust him with it, in the middle of all of that darkness, you have two choices. And choice number one is get on your knees and say, God, I know you're good. The cross proves that. The coming is going to vindicate everything I have to do now. And I'm willing to say it's worth it all, God. I'm going to trust you. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what it means to be entirely faithful to you now. I know certain things I shouldn't do. I'll try not to do them. If I do, I know I'm going to be forgiven. But God, I want to trust you in the middle of all this. But it's hard because I don't know what, to, what, what, what you're doing. I'm, I'm having confusion here because your ways are so far above mine. But God, I trust you to do me good because you said you would. That's called faith. But then he says, but that's difficult. I want you to watch out. Verse 11. You who live in your own light, you who decide, I want my life to get better. I'm not looking to be a more godly man. I'm looking to be a happier man in my life in between my birth and my death. And I've got to light a fire to figure out what to do to make my life work in the ways I want it to because I can't depend on God because he's not doing it the way I want him to. He's not answering prayer. And I'm very confused about what to do. So I'm going to light my own fire. I'm going to become a fire lighter. And I'm going to figure out what to do so life goes the way I want it to. Are we clear? Uh, I told many people, maybe you've heard me say this before. Maybe I say it 20 minutes ago and I forget. When our two boys were born, did I tell you about this? I wanted to be the best father the world's ever known. I really wanted to be a good dad. And I figured if I can get the word of God in their hearts, they will not sin against God or me. So I decided to teach my kids the Bible. We had family devotions as very few families have devotions. I purchased, I told you this, didn't I? I purchased an overhead projector for family devotions. <laughs> we did Old Testament survey, New Testament survey. By the time my kids were five years old, they could know the difference between propitiation and expiation. Can you imagine any kid having trouble with knowing the Bible that well by age five? I was a firelighter, do you see? I wasn't wanting to be the godly father. I was wanting to maneuver God into giving me the kids that I wanted without any struggles in my life. Watch out, you who live in your own light. And warm yourselves by your own fires because what's, what's going to happen? This reward you're going to receive me. You're going to end up just being so disappointed. You're going to end up leading a wasted life. You're trying to make your life in between your birth and your death be everything you want it to be. It doesn't work that way. Join the larger story of God. What does the cross make possible when your child breaks your heart? What does the cross make possible when your husband leaves you? What does the cross make possible when fill in the blank? And what sustains us in the difficulty of doing that? The expectation of his coming. Why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. If the only hope we have in God is going to do us good as we define good in between our birth and our death, we're to be pitied more than others. But in between life and death, we can live in the reality of the cross. I want to finish my comments very briefly by telling you a quick story. Mother Teresa, the saint of Calcutta, a book came out about her about eight years ago, ten years ago, Come Be My Light. She didn't want this made known to the world, but the 
one who wrote the book, her spiritual director, said it might be good for the world to know that Mother Teresa, for 50 years of her ministry, never once sensed the intimate presence of Jesus. She was sustained by her thirst for Jesus, not by her experience of Jesus. And I've come to the conclusion that our thirst for God sustains us more than our experience of God. Mother Teresa was sustained by her thirst for God for 50 years, but at the end of her life, she died a miserable death. The nun physician who was attending her later said that he never, she never saw a person die with more pain. Mother Teresa, the last words she spoke out loud before she died, weakly in her miserably difficult, painful conditions, she said, three, she said two words. Well, three words, I guess. It's too much. That's when faith goes on trial. God is too much. This went wrong, but now that went wrong. And now this went wrong too. God is too much. Last word she ever said. But then before she died, she moved her hand and was obviously angling for a pencil to be put in her hand and a piece of paper. And the last words she wrote were different from the last words she spoke. The last words she spoke is too much. The last words she wrote I want Jesus. What am I saying to me this morning? I'm just talking to myself and you're listening in. Don't quit. Don't settle for naive faith. Everything's going to be just fine. Every trial will become a blessing by tomorrow morning. It might not. An abundance of faith becomes available when we wrestle with the difficulties in our faith. Then we discover that it's our thirst for God that will sustain us. And we hear the Father saying, I've not deserted you. I never will. I love you too much for that. I hear the Son saying, my Son has a great plan. And it includes some really hard things. But boy, do wonderful things come out of it. And the Spirit says, don't take your life into your own hands. Don't try to make your life between your birth and your death everything you wanted. Rather, make your life between the cross and the coming everything God has designed for you to become a little Christ, somebody who puts God on display by the way you live and the way you relate, no matter what's happening in your life. That's Isaiah 50 in my understanding. And I trust that maybe it'll speak to you as it's spoken to me. Holy Father, You're our Heavenly Father, and sometimes I wish you were a Heavenly Grandfather and would treat me more like a grandfather would, but you're, you're a disciplinarian because you love me so much. And Lord Jesus, you didn't promise to keep us out of trouble. You promised to survive us through trouble and that all of our sins and all of our failures would be forgiven and you'd give us reason to continue. You've given us a, weir, a word to the weary that whatever the struggles, there's still hope of becoming more like what you want us to be. And then the Holy Spirit, you want to guide us in that direction. Keep us from lighting fires to make sense of our own lives. Help us to realize that you're making sense out of our lives and we want to join your story. Help us to trust you even when the darkness comes so that when the light comes, we can celebrate legitimately. We ask it all in the name of the only one that gives us access to the throne, in the name of Jesus.